Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. We're doing it. It's time, gents. It's time. 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast, 3.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. No doubt everybody's up. What's happening, fellas? Everybody's in Cali today. Yeah. What's that? I've got audio issues over here, so I'm going to be playing with my mute a lot. (laughs) Play with your button. Um, This is Value After Hours. I'm joined, as always, by Bill Brewster and Jake Taylor. Uh, I'm talking about Vidad's quality paper, which came out on Monday, which was excellent. What are you talking about, JT? Uh, I've got a little segment that's going to be kind of a PSA in some ways uh, that's really sort of about leadership and actually what I kind of expect from our fans. So it might be might be a, a little sanctimonious. We'll see. <laughs> what about you, Bill? I, uh, I, have, I have a number of things. I have a, a correction to make on something that I said. Uh, I have some thoughts about um, Jake's comments last week, and then I was going to talk a little bit about uh, my drawdown, which is always fun. Maybe I can start with the correction and sort of frame a little bit of something. So, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, Ray Dalio, and he said that Evergrande was uh, contained and I made an off-handed joke uh, about like, yeah, as they're selling China or whatever. And one of our listeners happens to work at Bridgewater. Sometimes I forget that some of you are very intelligent and some, for some reason, listen to me. I can't fucking figure that out, but uh, I appreciate it. And he said, you know, that's not what's going on. And uh, if you'd like to get on the phone, um, you know, I'm happy to. And I... Um, a, I apologize for making a joke and saying somebody's name. Uh, the, um, I should joke about collective people, right? And not, or by category and not uh, an individual. So I apologized to him for uh, that they may have been doing anything nefarious. It's, I was not thinking, I assure you, I have no information into what they are doing. I think generally, as you're listening to this program, you should understand that it's basically three guys talking as if we would at a bar. And sometimes I say things at a bar that are not necessarily like well thought out. And uh, that's going to happen here, too, occasionally. So I apologize. And to the extent that it went at anybody's reputation, uh, I am making a formal retraction. (laughs) That's everything. Everything on this program is for comedic effect. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I tend to think about it. Satire. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, and hopefully it gets some education too. Um, but you know, it is it is for comedic effect. Two, thinking about Jake's stuff last week, uh, I sat down and I really thought about it hard. And I I don't think it's possible to argue that. What did, what did I uh, say? First of all, I don't even remember. Oh, everybody should know. They should all know. They should have memorized it. <laughs> no, I don't. It remember. was that. Um, you should think on your own and then talk to other people and then update your expectation or, you know, Uh, like your own projections. Uh, I came off a little bit dismissive when I listened to that um, back. That's not how I meant it. I meant it that I'm too stupid to figure stuff out on my own. So I tend to 
talk to people uh, in order to work through things to come up with my initial conclusion. But I do agree that uh, it's very important to understand people's incentives while doing that. So those are sort of my two follow-up items. Good. Get those checked off. Okay, good. Now, now, now should I just go into what it's like to get my ass kicked or yeah. should we do something else? Let's make some new errors. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, this is next week's so, retractions. Coming yeah, right now. Next... <laughs> I don't, I don't think that this is going to be a retraction. Um, I kept man you know, doing the house. It's interesting. So just... Like people talk about, um, the dangers of talking publicly about a specific name. Um, I think that one of the dangers of sort of being out there um, and and being public uh, for me last year uh, was I have I have always visualized reacting rationally in a crash, uh, and I think I did a pretty good job of that last year. Um, then. I went through uh, the stuff with Robin Hood and then I made some moves in the back part of the year that were worked out very well. And I think that I started to almost like believe my own shit a little bit. And I think I did get lax with some of the, uh, you know, like things that I should be demanding out of um, investments. And some things that I owned. I mean, like I, I posted on Twitter. Um, I can cite my returns. I don't want to run money. I don't run money. I'm never going to run money. So whatever. Uh, so I said I was down 16%, you know, on the quarter. Now, uh, what I didn't say is things are still going fine. Um, but that kind of a correction has made me have to really think about one, do I want to run this kind of a strategy for my family? Right. Like it may honestly be more volatility than I think my wife and I really want to incur at this time. Uh, two, what do I need to demand out of the investments that I have currently in my book and will be there in the future? And then three, you know, looking through the reasons of why the, uh, you know, the events unfolded as they did. Some of it, I had a huge position in a, in a stock that was like too, it was just too stretched. And I kind of knew that. And it came in some of it. You hear me bitch about curate all the time. Like, I just don't fundamentally really understand where that, why that's selling off. Like it is some of it was bad execution on management teams. Some of it was bad execution on me. So I think like taking that inventory and then reflecting on, okay, where did I fuck up? How can I avoid messing up in the future? And do I really need to uh, change what I'm doing or my strategy is kind of, you know, how I'm uh, how I've internalized it. And I know that, you know, a lot of people uh, seem to be avoiding carnage. I think it's probably closer to they're just not like being totally honest about the carnage because there is a lot out there of stocks that are down a big, big amount. Uh, whether or not the index is, that's a different issue. But um there's a lot of pain out there. So I think that's how you deal with it. That's how I'm responding to it. I'm going to try to adopt a little more Peter Kaufman win, win, win in me. Um, you know, if you want the bottom set for Altice, you're welcome for last week. That's probably about the best contraindicator you're going to get me getting on the podcast and bitching about it. Um, 
But, you know, I think that something that I'm going to focus more on and be more demanding about is uh, probably like businesses that are operating in the win-win-win mindset. Um, I think I probably got a little bit loose on that. And I think I had some trades that worked out well. And I think it got me a little bit too lax. So um, in all my visualization, I always visualized how I would do in a downside. I never actually thought about how I would respond to being successful. And I think that without thinking through that, uh, I mismanaged some success. But don't cry for me, Argentina. Things are just fine over here. There's a little bit of a drawdown going around. Can't, can't, uh, it's, it's contagious. There's nothing you can do to avoid that one, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I, th- I do think, like, you know, I mean, people said, or, or at least one fan said, I'd like to hear you talk about it. I mean, look, I think that, there are some names that I, I don't, I'm not the smartest person, on, right? Like Google, I just don't have this unique view. Um, some of it is just holding something that I've won big on. And I've learned a little bit from Chuck Acri and that when you're winning and the business is performing, you probably don't want to let something like that go. Maybe that's famous last words. There are other things that like, I really think are really cheap here. Um, so I'm either going to get my ass kicked or I'm about to like do okay. And we'll all sort of find out together. Uh, the one thing I don't want to lose to anymore is like quasi shitty execution. And um, I don't know, companies with like bad culture and stuff like that. I'm not, I don't really want to lose to that anymore. I'm tired of that shit. Why do you worry? There's a good comment here. Short-term prices are a poor measure of investment performance. Why are you worried about a month or so of like, or whatever it is, six months of like share price performance. Haven't we already, like the reason we're doing this stuff is because we think that this share prices are irrational and they're not a great indicator of underlying fundamental business performance in, in many cases. So uh, I'm more worried about the behavior uh, that I exhibited that was maybe a little more risk seeking than I think was prudent at times. I'm not, I don't really care about like my mark. Uh, I also do think that it's important to at least like acknowledge that the market is telling you something. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to like adjust what I'm doing. I'm not selling curate cause it's down for instance. Right. I, I do wonder what the market is trying to signal. Um, and I think that that's prudent. I mean, I've been reading like debt, a lot of Malbison. What debt, uh, debt ceiling kind of nonsense? Like it's it, the debt ceiling is going to be resolved. It it always is resolved. But you, you, maybe you got to think about it a little bit. People got to hedge it out. Maybe that's what creates the the sell off. I mean, we were off a lot yesterday, and we're up a lot today. Like you can't really deduce anything from either, can you? No, but I'm I'm getting like eerily close to the index on a five year basis, and I think over five years that matters. Uh, so you know, I don't know. I just think it's I think it's always good to reflect on who you are and the behavior that you're exhibiting, and whether or not the market is. Uh, I I don't I don't think the market would be causing me to act in a certain way, but there's an argument to be made that uh, I've maybe chased some ideas that. Um, we're overly risk seeking and I probably should have put those in the too hard pile. And that's on me. That's not about a mark. Right. So improve and keep going. Yeah, I agree. Toby, do you want to do? Yeah. 
I think because it kind of fits in a little bit with what Bill's talking about as far as kind of quality versus value and holding periods and for dad um this was written by greg obenshain um i've had uh dan rasmussen on the podcast um the the article was how does quality work and i thought it was a fun article because their definition of quality they're using a variety of factors but they're using the novi marks gross profits on total assets um as their as their main one and then their value metric is gross profits on enterprise value so it's like a it's like a uh, like a book value version of, or sorry, like a PE version of um, of value. So they're comparing the two, and so what they have found is that value sort of slightly outperformed quality over the over the full data set that they have, um, but the margins not much. The most interesting thing I thought was that um, they seem to be if you if you take the the long short version, so the market neutral version. And you take decile, uh, quintile rather, one, the most expensive quintile minus the cheapest quintile, or you take the best quality minus the worst quality, quality minus junk, which is the way that uh, AQR characterized it in their paper, which came out in 2013, I think, something like that. Um, basically, you find that it has this interesting performance where when value does really badly, quality seems to do quite well. And then when value does quite well, quality seems to not do as well. So they've got this, the chart in it, I think that is the most interesting one. It's just the long short comparing. It's only a couple of decades. It's 1996 to 2021. Not really sure what quality looks like outside of that. Um, I know that it has outperformed, but I just don't know if it has exhibited this particular behavior where there've been two kind of, big sell-offs for value over that period of time, 96 to date, late 1990s, of course. And then more recently, they've actually, they've, they've characterized the, the most recent one as finishing in 2020. It was 2018 to 2020. So I was very relieved to learn that that's over. Um, <laughs> they're bolder than I am, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. I don't mind. Confirmation bias is how I keep going. So <laughs> quality has sort of quality stalled out from about 2013 to 2020 and this is something that i've observed a few times as i've been running my own little tests on this stuff that really quality was very very flat and then around 2018 quality just took off and i don't really know why and then that's exactly the same period that value really started selling us it, it may be that it just that definition of quality the gross profits on total assets has captured that particular technology industry sector or that part of the market that took off and so it's a complete fluke but i I don't think so i think that this this is like a a version of the paper that uh james montier wrote that came out a long time ago when he was examining the um the little book that beats the market strategy and he said in that that there were these times where you know value basically works uh outperforms over the long run but you have these painful periods like the late 1990s where potentially you get fired as a value manager because you just can't keep up so i just think it's a very interesting paper but the uh, the the most interesting or another interesting part was the drivers of returns to quality and value uh, quality the drivers of returns seem to be um asset growth which is probably what you'd expect you, that, that's why you're buying a quality company because it's able to generate reasonably good asset growth and then the drivers of value returns are um re-ratings so multiple expansion 
Um, really, reversion. Yeah. So it's so the other thing that you can then learn from that is that quality tends to be a little bit more predictive of quality in the future. So if something is high quality now, it tends to be quality next month, uh, next year rather, and the year following. And I think they can predict that to about three years. Whereas value, like you're relying on value not being value in the future, you want value to meet and revert. You want that gap to close. And so quality tends to be a little bit more durable. So I just think in when I think about that strategy, how you'd combine those two, I immediately think that's what Buffett's doing, right? He's trying to hold quality businesses, but he's trying to buy them when they become value. And I think that uh, the other papers that I've seen on quality, quality does seem to be the, the returns to quality do seem to be dictated a little bit by the multiples that you pay. So lower multiples for good quality tend to deliver pretty good returns and high multiples for good quality tend to be flattish. So that might've been what happened in 2013, 2017. What do you guys think? Over what time frame do you say that like the uh, multiple matters? I, I mean, obviously it always matters, but I'm just trying to, when you say that, returns are flattish i'm just trying to figure out what you're saying exactly well, this is this was 2000 this particular one is 2013 to 2018 there were just if you were long short quality so quality minus junk you didn't make any money for for five years there and i have seen i this is just my recollection of the qmj paper by aqr which i haven't read in a little while but i i should go and revisit but they had this um what drives the returns to quality? And this is assuming that you've already created a quality portfolio that follows the rules. And they, they have other measures in there like gross margins and uh, return on equity in addition to gross profits on total assets. And uh, they said in that paper that it was, you know, if, if you pay too much for it, you, you get bad returns. If you, if you, or they, you know, quality doesn't really ever fall over, but it just seems to deliver flat returns for an extended period of time. Whereas, um, you know, you'd expect value to be driven by the value multiple that you're paying, but quality is also driven by what you pay, which is sort of why I think it's it it, it it's very it, it that's sort of a pretty good approach to what what Buffett is doing. Yeah, I think the that the concept of persistence there, uh, and then how you should formulate your strategy is pretty important. So if quality is a more persistent strategy, like quality begets quality, um, at least over some time period. I don't think that that is true. At least capitalism's broken if it doesn't eventually mean revert. Um, but so that would imply then that like longer holding periods, less turnover, more letting quality run probably and be quality. Uh, and then obviously a value, if it's about mean reversion of the, the multiple, then uh, you want that to happen relatively quickly for you to have a better IRR and you want to turn over the portfolio to the cheapest things that you can find again when what was cheap became not so cheap. Yeah, uh, someone's left a comment here that a lot of value investors anecdotally switched to quality so they wouldn't underperform so much. And I think that that's fair because it's still fundamental analysis and it's still, it's very, very close. You just, it's what you're paying for what you're, what you're buying. So if your universe gets increasingly constrained to sort of a, you know, high return on invested capital, which is what's been working. Um, Under your head, margins. Toby, do you think that the price of quality has gotten to the point where you might expect more, uh, less optimistic returns from here of the quality factor? So 
I think that quality is not growth. Like quality is not necessarily um, buying something on the basis of the, the 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 rate at which the revenues and so on and everything is sort of growing. Quality is still some sort of internal you know, look at what kind of revenues the business can generate and how stable those revenues are and what proportion of them translate into cash. So I don't know necessarily that quality has caught that, you know, it's not growth, but having said that, it's clearly the fact that it's had a pretty good run indicates that it's it's more expensive now than it was in 2018. So I, yeah, I, I have, without having looked at it off the top of my head, I'd guess that it's a lot more expensive than it was and probably values unusually cheap right now so probably there's more return to value than there is to quality over the next say five years i i guess um it all i think a lot of it is uh this is such a cop-out answer but it's what i actually think uh a lot of it's about time horizon and then whether or not you're right um you know and it's obviously a lot harder to be right uh for an extended period of time but I think that, you know, I've, I don't know, I've been reading a lot of, uh, old, um, older Malbosan or Mabosan. I'm sorry, Mike, I know you're a big fan and I always mess up your name and it stinks. It's gotta be so hurtful. Mobison. Mobison. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but you know, like his, uh, his paper on competitive advantage period is, uh, something that, uh, the, the uh, Randolph Duke on the Twitter machine sent me, uh, and that was excellent. And uh, I, I just got expectations in investing. I've been reading Think Twice. Uh, I'm like really deep in it. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of got me reappreciating uh, that, you know, we're all playing a game that the cash flows are greater than five years out, right? So um, if you're going to hold quality, I think you got to think really long term and the business should probably be in a, in an industry that's probably growing. Uh, it's got to have, you know, the moat for lack of a better term or whatever. I don't know. I think those are like overly, uh, overly found. I'm not sure how many moats actually exist. They're everywhere. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I do know that, uh, I find there to be a somewhat of a disconnect in at least how I have processed multiple re-ratings and long-term thinking. Um, But I think in order to be correct that a multiple is low, that you have to be able to think long-term. And I I just think this game's really hard. That's what I think. I'm kind of reminded too of, uh, you know, probably the preeminent, researcher on forecasting Phil Tetlock saying that anyone who gives you an estimate that's further than five years out is, is really doing you a favor because you can basically safely ignore anything that they're saying. Uh, that's how hard it is to forecast anything five years from now. <laughs> so <laughs> it certainly turns up in the data. Like if you're looking at, like I think value gives you excess returns out to five years, but there's the very vast bulk of them are in the first few years, one, two, three. That'd be nice. <laughs> Does that is that a still a thing we can do? <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> I think it's it's just there's there's the competitive landscape is always has always been tough. I don't think it's a new thing that where everything's 
you know, that there's increased competition or anything like that. Maybe it feels that way. Maybe it always feels that way because every good idea is pretty rapidly adopted to the extent that it can be. So right there is your excess return, your, your super economic profit getting eaten away. And I, I, st- I, I, I don't know whether the result is that we're going to have a few fewer bigger winners which is certainly what seems to have happened or whether we just get um you know shorter periods of dominance and everybody adopts that thing i i I honestly don't know which way it goes but it does look like fewer bigger winners at the moment well just from like a business standpoint i i think that many industries have gotten to this stage where there are like legitimate I mean, like Costco is really, really hard to outcompete. There's real scale benefits that they have at this point. And like, that's really, really hard to displace. And I think that there's a number of industries where we've had consolidation to the point of, you know, how long it may take a lot longer to compete away, or you may need like a real uh, government intervention, but I don't think that's going to happen. So I don't know. That's that's the only reason that I think that maybe these, maybe this time is different, and maybe it's not. But the, I I kind of would it be open to accepting that there's some probability that capitalism is somewhat broken. I I would not dismiss that possibility. I mean, the problem that we have at the moment is that all of these, the COVID restrictions make it much much more difficult for little companies than it does for big companies because big companies can, you know, so. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's Costco. I forget exactly who it is, but you know, somebody. There's a container shipping um, blockage all over the world. There, are, you can't get container ships. You can't get pallets. Everything's backed up at the LA LA port. You can see it out on the water here. And so, some of these bigger retailers have been able to buy a ship, and load the ship up, and they're using a dedicated ship now to do their own to do their own shipping like a little company is not going to be able to do that they're sort of subject to and, and now because it's so hard to get a container containers are super expensive you got to prepay all of your your, your shipping uh, like uh, we we need to get back to normalcy for for competition to really start kicking in right? and that's at, at the moment this is this is massively beneficial to big companies and tough for small companies one of the <clears throat> so in the cambrian explosion one theory of why it happened and what that is, is like, I don't know, roughly 500 million years ago, we saw a sudden wide diversification of species, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about here is that like, there's like a few dominant large species and not enough sort of broad niches being filled by a lot of different species. And we've talked about this on the show with uh, adaptive radiation, but uh, one of the theories is that uh, ecologically, there was all of a sudden a lot of oxygen available right before the Cambrian explosion. And the idea there is that then animals that like oxygen is hugely important for the, for the, the Krebs cycle and like creation of energy within an animal uh, and the ability that like the vitality of the animal is dictated by the amount of oxygen in the, in the atmosphere. And it feels like maybe COVID has sort of sucked the oxygen out of the economic ecology in a lot of ways. And then therefore, you know, there's maybe less, uh, less vitality for smaller, uh, competitors against bigger competitors. But then on the flip side, the fact that people are forced, I mean, we, there are many fewer people working from home, it turns out than, than, than you might think, but 
Look, it does seem to me that there are a proliferation of little businesses. All of them are built on the bigger platforms like Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, where they're um, that that's basically their single channel for sales. But it does seem to be a very you know it doesn't take much now to set up a company selling board shorts and plaster that all over Instagram and and make you know some money, make reasonable money doing that. Yeah, maybe. But just it's like a board. job, though. It is a job. Yeah. And also, you, 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 like you can't company, own that, right? Like, you don't own that as an investor. <laughs> I mean, you've got the brand. You've got something in it. Like, it's a, it, it, it's not a, you're right. It's not an, it's not, it's a single person venture. And it's, it, but some, most of them are going to fail. And most of them are just going to, they're not going to outlive the people who run them. But some of them are going to establish a brand and, and extend beyond those channels and sort of, but then I don't think that they're really competing with anything. You know, I don't think the board shorts go. Well, the weird be- thing is like, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I mean, we're part of it right now, right? We're, we're donating time to YouTube that they're not paying for and demonetizing us. God forbid we say the word of the biggest pandemic going on in a year and a half. Pandemic might be enough. Pandemic might be enough. Yeah, we're done. COVID, COVID, COVID. Anyway, sorry guys. Now we don't make any money, but, um, you know, it's just interesting. My buddy and I were talking last night about um, like how many um, you need a, to verify your phone number for a lot of these like tech platforms, right? Or or like PayPal wants you to have a bank account. eBay wants you to have a bank account. Like how much of that is just outsourcing all of your uh, making sure, like basically you know your customer stuff, right? And they're just like, there's just, uh, I feel like there's, there's these businesses that are just extracting uh, value from people. And then, you know, the answer is like, oh, well, you can have like a board short company. And it's like, yeah, but that kind of sucks, like uh, relative to the person that is the aggregator of all the attention and whatnot. I mean, you know, there will be successes, but uh, turning everybody into an entrepreneur is a cutthroat uh, outcome. Um you can have some really good outcomes from it. I mean, this is how capitalism works. It's just kind of interesting how there's a lot of um, so. What you're saying is we aggregation need some decentralizing technology that will allow us to get around all of those uh, platform type things. It's like a pretty good argument for blockchain, Bitcoin, <laughs> Ethereum, DeFi, DeFi. Yeah, I do think. Well, you're a, good a idea. resident resident Bitcoin expert. I'm not. I'm not a Bitcoin expert. I'm. Uh, I'm just crypto curious. Uh, <laughs> Preston Pish sent me some money the other day on a Strike wallet, and I was. I thought that was pretty cool. I will admit that. Was that yep. measured in something, or was it measured in dollars? Uh, I received dollars, um, and according to him and somebody else, uh, a couple fans of the show sent me some. I'm always open for your tips. Uh, Lord <laughs> knows Google doesn't pay, and neither does Toby. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hang both, on both i think maybe that came out incorrectly <laughs> but anyway uh long story short uh if you want to send me money you can uh it seems as though it's always converted to u.s dollars interesting i pay an exposure can we JT? uh yeah let's yeah, do let's do let's do yours okay i'm not gonna call this veggies even because it's more of a, a bit of a of a PSA, but uh, I thought it was kind of important. I had a couple of things that connected that I wanted to, uh, that inspired me to want to talk about this. So in past 
shows, we've talked about this Buddhist concept of mudita, which was vicarious joy, basically like genuinely celebrating the success of others and how, you know, it's the opposite of schadenfreude. And, you know, in this industry, especially you see the worst of humanity, I think when it comes to schadenfreude, um, except maybe Instagram. Uh, but I watched over the weekend, I watched the, the movie Boiler Room. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Uh, it's kind of a classic. Wall Street classic. Yeah. Um, and it's like 20 years old now, turns out. Uh, but the uh, so Giovanni Ribisi, he's like the main guy in it. Right. And he he's on the phone with this guy who's like a purchasing manager, middle manager, and he's got a family. They're living in an apartment. It's too small for them. And Rubisi talks him into putting $50,000, which was the down payment on a house uh, into this just total vaporware bullshit, you know, penny stock pump and dump thing. And of course, all the money disappears. And this guy's housing, like the, the down payment he was going to put on his house is gone now. His wife leaves, you know, takes the kids. And like, you, you see this guy just sitting there with his, his head in his hands you know, broken from this, this scam. And, um, I recently saw some research on, uh, there were two researchers, Engelberg and Parsons who published a paper in 2016 in the journal of finance. And that what they looked at was from 1983 to 2011, they looked at individual patient records in California hospitals, and they found a strong leak between daily stock returns and hospital admissions, especially around psychological, uh, phenomena, uh, conditions like anxiety, panic disorders, major depression. And so like when the market goes down, like people end up in the hospital often from, from the trauma of it. And uh, Wisniewski and Lamb in 2020 in the Journal of Financial Research found robust and sig significant relationship between uh, stock market returns and suicide rates. And, uh, the, you know, there's the, in the banker's panic of 1907, there was like uh, the, the bankers and brokers at the time had like 2x the suicide rate of the general population. Um, and of course, like there's sort of these this folklore of uh, 1929 people, or, you know, brokers jumping out of windows and things like that. But um, which I, I'm joking now when I say this, but like now I, I finally understand that uh, that magazine cover that has Powell with the Superman shirt, uh, you know, when he's he's ripping his suit off and it says Superman under there. Right. He's he's saving all these people. Uh, anyway, it's it's easy to forget that all of this, this stuff in the market, all these things we talk about, like it has impact on real people and their lives and and what happens to them. And obviously, Bill, you know, you're you're probably very painfully aware of the, the real impact that some of this shit has. And um, I think that if you're listening to this podcast right now, you know, if you're willing to be down in the weeds with us and in, you know, a lot of the minutia and jargon that we use, like you're probably already pretty sophisticated. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people look up to you in a financial sense and an investment sense. Like I, I have to believe that um, that you were probably a leader in a lot of ways, maybe even if you don't realize it and people ask for your advice and opinions. Uh, and I think whenever the next market crash does happen, who knows when, but it's going to happen at some point. This is just how this works. There are going to be real people who are hurt. And I think that all of us and you as a listener as well, um, I would really ask that you think about your role in being a helper there and being a leader and stepping up and, and helping the people who, 
might be psychologically damaged by it, who might uh, take extreme actions if, un, if, un, if the unfortunate things do happen. And uh, at a minimum, you know, I think there's the potential of a whole generation, perhaps, who will lose out on investing in the market and owning businesses and, and a lot of the good that can come from that. And I think that our society is strongest when we have a lot of participation in the ownership of the businesses. We have a lot of buy-in. Um, we have that. I think that actually leads to a lot more egalitarian outcomes, actually, than as opposed to like a few people owning all of the assets in a society. So, um, you know, and we saw that that happened during after the Great Depression. There was a whole generation of people who swore off equities after they they got you know they sat on the hot stove. And I think that you'd be doing a huge service to to your fellow human if you stepped up whenever that next thing does happen and check in on people and, you know, just make sure that, um, do what you can to help. And, you know, I think the three of us will hopefully be doing that and helping. Uh, but I would say our listeners have just as much of a, a right to do that and are probably just as equipped to do it as we are. Um, so that's the little PSA slash sermon for today. Um, and you know, maybe next, next week I'll come back with something with uh, sperm whales instead. <laughs> What's the, what's the uh, what's the secret to doing it? Is it separating yourself out from the returns? I mean, part of the problem is that we are going to lose real money through this next bust up. So people are going to think it is going to look potentially dire if you're not taking out now. What you know, if, if you have more than you can afford to lose in the market now, then now's a good time to like rectify that situation. Yeah, and I would say that um, you know I. <laughs> Just like when I look at my IRA and I say, well, you know, 30-ish percent of this is not actually mine. That's Uncle Sam's. He's just a silent partner in it. And so I adjust my net worth downward mentally a little bit. You can look at an extended market kind of in the same way and say like, eh, a lot of this is maybe not actually like my real wealth. Like just because the most recent mark to market was pretty high on this doesn't mean I'm actually as rich as I might think I am. Uh, and so just Maybe it's a little bit of mental adjustments now when you're in the high periods. And likewise, the ownership of businesses during low periods, uh, you know, I mean, we haven't had a lot of those in the last decade, but when they do happen, uh, you know, like your ownership is probably worth more than what the last trade thinks it was worth. And you kind of have to adjust upward a little bit of what your true wealth is. So just, you know, it's, it's classic, you know, chapter eight and 20 from, from intelligent investor of, Mr. Market, you know, not, not instructing you as to the worth of your, of your holdings, but instead, you know, as a, as a partner that uh, is there to, to take advantage of when you can. As Mip Favor points out, there's only two states in the market. You're either at an all-time high or you're drawing down and you're not at an all-time high very often, which means most of the time you're drawing down. So you just got to get used to being in a drawdown and sometimes it's deeper than it otherwise is. Is that what Meb says? That's yeah, how he, he frames it. He, he said it. Oh, I mean, he said there's only you're either at an all time high, you're drawing down, and most of the time you're not at an all time high. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Uh, think about that, dude. I, I mean, I've talked about him before. This is why uh, I mean, it's not why, but it's one of the things that I really respect about Mike Mitchell. Like, uh, you know, he wasn't that. I mean, he was excited when things were going well, but he wasn't like overly excited when i talked to him and then you know he's had a 
correction. Uh, I think if you look at the stock price and you think about his portfolio, you can figure out his correction. And when I talk to him, he's the same guy. Like it's, it's amazing. The ability to not be impacted by that kind of volatility, I think is a major superpower. And I, I don't think a lot of people have it. I mean, um, you know, virtually impossible. I, I'm what it's virtually impossible. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think a good thing to, to really like take account of, and it's always better to do it at highs but it's to say, okay, well, you know, what do I really want to risk here? Like you guys said, and then is my asset allocation reflective of what my true risk tolerance is? I mean, I, I think that's a very important conversation that people should be having with themselves, not during a drawdown or at all times highs, like always. I think that's uh, it's really important, probably the most important thing. And then the stock picking is probably uh, quite a bit secondary to your overall actual results. One of the, I was uh, I debated on I was gonna maybe even lead us in a little loving kindness meditation after this because that is actually one of the I think great ways to get out of your own head and recognize that there, everyone else just kind of wants to be happy and healthy and do well just like you do. Um, I'm not gonna do that because I decided that would have been a little cheesy, but but do yourself a favor and just find a you know a five minute loving kindness medica- meditation and listen to it and like, see if it doesn't make you feel better and feel a little bit more connected to your, your fellow man. And, um, just recognize that we're all just trouser wearing apes who are trying to do the best that we can every day. Was that a love and kindness medication? That sounds yeah. really good. Yeah. Maybe that, that was a Freudian slip maybe. Cause it is kind of medication. Yeah. You, I found some medication for that last night. Thank you, California. <laughs> Do you guys uh, want to take some questions? I think there's some good stuff in here that, that we should talk about a little bit. Uh, what about the energy spike? What are your current views on how to play it? Is there something for value to outperform here? Likely, I think that drives some value for outperformance if you're in energy. Build a time machine. Go back till the, when <laughs> the prices were negative. Yeah. And, and realize Gee, like, that probably wasn't going to last. Yeah. What's your what's your oil yeah. and gas? Yeah, so here's the thing, though, right? Uh, like that was the time to buy, and now I see generalist interest in oil. That makes me very, very nervous. Very nervous. Yeah, in fairness, the I saw something recently that like capex is still like way off for the industry, so there might have gotten a little religion. So it, it could, this, this, this could be a sustainable thing. These things, this is like our uh, extinction topic that we talked you about. You think before. oil guys aren't going to drill for oil? I, I mean, think it just, can take a while is what I'm saying. And yeah. the, price, the price can go crazy places in the meantime. This is like a, it's not quite a, like you turn it. It's not like flipping a light switch exactly, right? Like there's a little bit of lead time. Yeah, but you're not, I guess, I guess that this is the thing that, I get caught up on one. I don't understand the industry and I think it's an industry where generalists just go to die. So that inherently from an outside view perspective gives me a little bit of concern. And two, like you're not buying one year of cash flow. So, you know, it's one thing if these things are priced at like two times cash flow and you think you're going to get the cash back, I, I get it, but like they're not. And then in years five, six, seven, eight, you're kind of relying on them not to expand again. And 
I don't know, maybe that will happen because maybe all this ESG has made them fully untouchable. And like, I, I kind of, I, I'm inherently attracted to that argument because fuck ESG. But outside of that, there's not like a reason that I am. Good comment here. Oil and gas guys aren't drilling it. I own an energy business talking to these guys every day. Do you, like the, when, you, when you think about the last oil sp- energy spike, was that that's kind of what was happening, right? It was, 2014? What, like that was the last might time. Be as long, might gas, be as long ago as that. Did they, you know, it just felt like everybody had a, like a, uh, like a, they had some share in a syndicate that was going to go and drill a well somewhere. And I don't think we're quite at that. Like we're not at the mania point yet. We're not, I don't think we're, I still think we're very early innings for, for oil and gas. The problem is that, you know, it's a commodity. I got no idea where that, where that's going. And I think you pointed out last time, JT, that oil and gas prices spiked the, that you think that was one of the, well, that was, there's a theory that that was one of the things that spiked the 2007 market when that ramped up. I have a friend who thinks that, that, uh, that oil running up to whatever it did, like 150 or something popped the, the 2008 bubble. I don't know. I don't understand the linkage of, and the mechanics of why that might be, but, um, it's an interesting theory. I don't know. I don't know that I would buy that it's causal, but um, I think when you have that much leverage and housing is slowing down, and then it, it might have been like the incremental thing with that much debt that kind of pricked the bubble. Yeah, you, know, you know, I, I guess in retrospect, it was objectively a bubble, so you can say that. But maybe certainly a, a cause or um, a correlated factor, right? What do you think that is? Just uh, the uh, the mopping up of disposable income from the average person when their energy costs spike like that. I would have said inputs into finished goods. It is kind of the prime mover of all humanity, really, in a lot of ways. Man, it's hard to tell how expensive it is because I'm in California. Like every time I fill up my tank, I do that thing where my eyes come out of my head. It's the biggest number I've ever seen every single time. Yeah, it's a good thing you can mortgage (laughs) your house so easily so you can fill up your gas tanks. Can't drive the car anymore. We just got to like start at the top of the hill and let it roll down. Jesus. Yeah, oil and gas. Uh, not a little love for oil and gas here. I don't think. I mean, dude, I, I I'm at my boy's house, and like until this dude is bullish on oil and gas, I'm not bullish on oil and gas, and that's just how my mind works. Why is he not? I, he doesn't like that other people like the idea of owning the stocks. Like he's just like, this is how generalists always get screwed. I like oil stocks when nobody wants to touch them. And right now, all I see is like excuses to buy. What was that a year ago when it went negative? Yeah, he yeah yeah he bought. He was buying a little bit when it was negative. What are the obvious? What what are what are obvious counterintuitive ideas at the moment? Then, if it's not oil and gas. I, mean, I don't think there's anything obvious at the moment. Like that, throw them. If you guys have got good obvious ideas, throw them in. But I, I kind of think that there's, you know, everything's everything's got hair on it. If it was obvious, it wouldn't be that good of an idea. Well, that's true. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, what he and I talked about, uh, and I don't even want to say this out loud because God forbid somebody actually thinks it's a good idea. But was uh, like some of these mining companies, they've been really beat up. Uh, especially the gold miners, like, I don't know. It's a terrible business though. I mean, there's so much merit in saying like, just from first principles, is this what you want to own from the long term? And 
I'd probably be like, no, but that's why there's opportunity. It's just, I'm not sure I'm the one that's going to figure out how to exploit the opportunity in that particular market. Video game publishers. Look stupid cheap right now. I've seen a few of them in the screens. What's the, uh, what's the reason for that? Just a frag, it's a fragmenting market. Spiritual opium. I don't know. What the video games? Well, that it's there's, there's like it's a big bump on like a, an unusual last twelve months or last eighteen months, and so they're just normalizing back to where they're going to be. I don't know. You had uh, culture problems. Uh, what was it? Take two, or was it Activision? I don't know. I, I I'm not I'm not dialed in enough to have an informed opinion there. I mean, you can't let that hold you back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's never this is a podcast. <laughs> Does Prem Watts' bad track record in the last 10 years justify Fairfax trading at 0.8% of book value? Uh, yeah. Point what percent? <laughs> oh, I don't think there was a percent there, was there? Just 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8 of book value. So I think uh, I, all insurance assets are financially repressed at the moment by low interest rates uh so it's really it's on the insurance to write profitable to have under underwriting that it's profitable to not lose money because you're not going to make it up on the returns of the float at this at today's interest rate environment um so uh fairfax i think has done a reasonably good job of their underwriting for the last especially the last five years um and then obviously, you know, if you're in low yielding instruments, like a bunch of bonds, it's going to be tough to do much on the float side. So uh, I like it as a, if you're thinking about, a, and this is true of all the insurance companies really, but I like it as a, uh, if you wanted to place a bet on interest rate changes to the upward, I would say there's a lot of latent earning power in insurance companies that uh, could be realized. Do you get the same thing from commodities? I mean, is higher interest rates going to help commodities? Is that like, is the whole, is the whole value cycle just? Yeah. Are you just interest uh, rates interest too rate? low? Yeah, I, possibly. <laughs> They're like, all sort of interconnected that way, right? It's like cash flows today versus cash flows far out into the future are also affected by that yeah. same interest rate equation. So I don't know. The whole thing's a goddamn interest rate play at, at this point of the cycle, I guess. Yeah. Va value just boils down to it. Where's the 10 year? It's like talking to Chris Cole. It's like everything is either long or short volatility. Like it doesn't really matter what it does. I know. It's sort of frustrating that that's been largely true, huh? Uh, any thoughts on outsider CEO Bill Stewart's at Post Holdings? He's a good investor. No, we don't. We don't have any. We don't have any. I mean, just uh, by my what I've seen of him, I've seems like he's. Uh, thinks for himself, which is what you're really looking for. But I don't know enough uh, about the individual moves other than what I've read in The Outsiders, that which is what, I don't know, 10 years old now. So um, I'm sure he's still been operating smartly, but I haven't really kept a close eye on it myself. Yeah, like Will Thorndike probably thought more about this answer than I did. So I'm just going to roll with him. What about uh, tobacco? It's a good business. You can smoke it. Do you still hold tobacco? I don't. 
Um, I thought there was a little bit of uh, opportunity cost in there. Uh, not a, not a win, win, win enough. Here. Um, so I, I don't know what I sold it to buy, but I don't, um, I, I, I'm not opposed to tobacco. I think tobacco makes sense. I, I like the yield. I think it makes sense as bond alternative. Uh, you know, you got terminal value risk, but, um, you know, that's existed for a long time in that business and they tend to be able to price their way out of it. I think this is an interesting trend too, that all the disruptors like Bonobos, I don't even know how to say it, Warby Parker, Casper, et cetera, getting back into bricks and mortar retail and Amazon too. It wasn't physical retail supposed to be dead? Are the cheap retail stocks? There's certainly some cheap. It's all about Omni Channel. Omni Channel. Yeah. I, know of, I know of one cheap retail stock, which is Sears, <laughs> which uh, earlier today traded for, I believe, two cents a share. If you can buy it, but it's under the. Uh, that uh, security issue at the moment it's where the queue at the end. Yeah. No one, well, not the queue. It's that, uh, well, they're, they're under restriction at the moment with, uh, you basically it's good luck you, you finding, finding a brokerage that would let you buy it. Yeah. You can only sell it. That's a weird. You I know, don't... I... Sorry, dude. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was well, just, just thinking that it's, it's just a weird thing. thing that that seems to be like, the, they've done that with all of the uh, OTC stocks as well. Like, you know, like, sell them you can't buy them anymore what's that do to the market like how does anybody get access to that stuff now you got to find a chop shop somewhere that'll let you do it i guess i don't know but i there was one day i think it was last week where sears opened literally at a tenth of a cent uh so it's a full 99 percent down for that day uh but then it went back up to like 18 cents during that same trading session so like you were it is just all over the place on tiny volumes if there was ever a time to be invoking the grain of salt index, which is if we remember the, you know, look at the total amount of volume relative to the change in market cap, and then decide whether you think that that's a reasonable mark to use for your your personal uh, ownership of a of a stock. Um, this is this is high up on the the grain of salt index. What happens if there are, you're only allowed to sell? Who, who's on the other side of the transaction? Sharks. How are they executing that? How are they getting? I don't don't know. But I got to find a brokerage so I can (laughs) buy for a tenth of a penny these lottery tickets. (laughs) Anyway, on the retail thing, uh, I I don't think that uh, omni-channel is a new thought. I I think that a lot of good retailers have demonstrated that a physical presence is an important component of what they're offering and i would suggest uh some some dude did a a deck on restoration hardware it was very well done uh one of the smartest guys i've ever seen i think i don't know selamar capital group or something like that that website's got it uh also that guy's not actually that smart um but uh william sonoma is another good example restoration hardware what didn't he sell yeah, restoration hardware? I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't. I, I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, William Sonoma, um, my beloved Cornerstone Brands are opening up some stores. Uh, I do think Warby Parker's one. Lululemon is a good example. I just think you need good retail experiences, and I think that the the retail story 
got a little bit over its skis because America like overbuilt so much mall space. And a lot of the boxes were shitty. So like shitty retail sucks. And then it turns into retail sucks, but that's not really true. That's kind of how I see that. Why bail on restoration hardware? Well, I mean, can people just let me like yeah. just not talk about this? Just kick uh, a guy it, was, it was April <laughs> Sorry, of 2020, and I was not convinced that they were going to generate sufficient cash flow to pay back their debt. And Gary said that they were going to use cash on hand. And I didn't foresee like one of the biggest explosions in furniture selling. And uh, I wish I had credit card data and I'd like to never talk about it again. It really hurts. It's up like seven X since I sold. So let's just all move on. Ouch. There's a few businesses like that. What's up with Crocs? Why is Crocs running so hard? Because they're fucking dope and kids love them. Yeah, I, I, I don't wear them. But I wear other stupid shit, so it's, it's not it's not like a, I'm too good for them or anything like that. I just don't. Dude, my youngest, if you try to take him outside without his Croc shoes on, you are going to get screamed at. <laughs> really? It's hardcore, huh? Yeah, and he doesn't even have, like, they have these little buttons that kids put on the Crocs to, like, make them, you know, their own. He doesn't even Why have that, but oh, he so. is down to ride in his Croc shoes. Hmm. That's a, that's another stock that's gone absolutely bananas over the last twelve months. I mean, it was like a it was another net net, super cheap, obvious winner. Yeah, fashion. not a I mean, not like, a not a fad, not a hula hoop. Well, it's come back, right? It was a fad for a while, and then you know wheelies was in there as well, and wheelies haven't come back, but Crocs have. Tough game, indeed. I wonder how Carter's is trading the uh, the baby clothing company. If you believe the demographics, they should do pretty well. And that's like uh, I've gone through a lot of Carter's clothes in my day. What do you like about Carter's? I don't know anything about them. Uh, I mean, I don't love anything about it, but it's like reasonably priced stuff that a child can poop in and you're not going to kill yourself for throwing it out. And it's kind of cute. So, oh, it's for kids. I thought, yeah, it's just basically like uh, Old Navy <laughs> for the workspace. Yeah. All right, folks. I think we're uh, we're running out of we're running out of uh, ideas here. So we're gonna we're gonna pull it. Um, we can talk about baby poop, baby poop, if you'd like. That would not be good, though. So we yeah. should pull it. I'm out of that business now. Thank God. Yeah, as am I. If I look a little flush, it's because I earned it last night. So I'm I'm happy to be out in California partying a little, but also I need some water and rest. <laughs> and an IV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did. But good to see old friends. We'll uh we'll be back uh, same time next week. See you then.